Today's episode is sponsored by Arvin, the UK's leading provider of residential creative writing courses. Book in now for their new digital programme, Arvin at Home, which brings their acclaimed roster of creative writing tutors into the comfort of your home for readings, masterclasses, one-to-ones and writing weeks. Find out more at arvin.org. Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. This is a show about writing for writers, for readers and for anyone with a morbid fascination with how the story sausage is made. We have three central planks to our writing manifesto on this show. One, to help you write more. Two, to help you write better. And three, to help you be a little bit happier as you do those two things to that end. I sometimes get listeners' first pages and look at them and suggest ways to make them better. I also have guests on the show, other writers... Sometimes psychologists, agents, editors to talk all about the art of making stories and creativity and how we can do those things better. And also sometimes it's just me having a little chat to you, chat at you, I think is probably the more accurate term about what I've been up to. Maybe taking on some specific element of creative writing and uh, giving my three penneth worth on what I think about it. How are you? Well, I hope. In fact, you'll hear in today's episode is me chatting to the um, poet, performer and writer Byron Vincent. And you'll hear us sort of negotiating the thorny problem of um, how to ask and answer the question, how are you in the current world <laughs> without coming off as an oaf? How, how do you say I hope you're well? Um, when that can sometimes seem like setting our sights a little bit high. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I, I hope I hope you're well, though, uh, or as well as you can be, or moving towards wellness, or finding sources of um, growth and meaning in your life. It's not always easy, is it? Especially <laughs> if you're me. But um, today I'm talking to uh, Byron, Byron Vincent, and... Um, he's someone I know, I've known for over a decade from the performance poetry scene, but he does much more than that, as well as being an accomplished um, stand-up poet. He also has taken several uh, shows to the Edinburgh Fringe. He's talked on stage. I've done lots of events with him, but he's you know talked on stage about all sorts of things to do with uh, like advocacy work around uh, mental health and to do with class and deprivation and violence and um he's, he's also just like a really really shrewd compassionate um entertaining funny guy whom i have just infinite wells of affection for um but it always seems and i never want to front load sort of like someone's biog by an artist's bio by saying oh they're really nice because it sounds <laughs> sounds like damning with faint praise as if being an awesome human being is somehow denigrates their work although it's funny that, that i that i feel that and we do that sometimes it I feel worried about saying someone's someone's nice because it it sounds like i'm trying to i always imagine in my head it sounds to the audience like i'm trying to compensate for some uh lack of sort of creative or artistic thoroughness but no, no he's, he's he's also brilliant and we we talk about that as well and moments i've had of if not jealousy then certainly admiration that 
would border on that if he didn't make it so difficult to dislike him by being an awesome person as well. But we we talk about loads of stuff from him coming up through the performance poetry scene to creating shows to he's working on a memoir at the moment. We talk about his his background, you know, growing up um, in kind of deprivation and uh, violence. He was homeless for a time. He struggled with various um, mental health issues. Uh, and, you know, I think me and him have got like a kind of, uh, con- although we had very sort of like a different lives, I think we can certainly kind of like meet on the uh, demilitarized zone of anxiety disorders <laughs> as a place where we both we both know that territory very well um i really enjoyed this chat there's like a there is a lot about writing like why we write why we create stories who you write for how you kind of pick your audience the difference between connecting with an audience and pandering to them you know like how do you meet an audience where they are and accommodate them and connect with them without diluting or sacrificing what you want to say not an easy not an easy task by any means and I think Byron's got a lot of insight in having to do that having had to do that and you know he talks in this chat about times that he feels like he managed to 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 bridge to thread that needle and, and times that he felt like maybe he did give something up and he didn't quite, you know, he, he, he you know, slightly tailored his cloth to an audience that, uh, to what he thought the audience wanted from him rather than what he needed to say and how he's developed through that. So I think that's really, really useful to anyone. Uh, you know, if you, if you feel like you've got things you want to express, either stuff from your own life or ideas in your stories or, you know, or you want to write, you know, or you consider, you know, dab dabbling in writing some autobiography or memoir or drawing from your own life experience i think so many of us imagine that we're not allowed to or who would want to hear about our life and so i think we talk a lot we talk a lot about what that process is like you know drawing upon your own life and how you decide what to write and the challenges that it brings up i think you're going to really love this chat we had a really good chat um I think it it goes takes a lot of takes a lot of turns and remains kind of fascinating and surprising right until the end of it. So I do sort of advise that you listen in and um stick with it basically because I think you're gonna get a lot out of it. I I honestly think this is one of the best episodes I've recorded actually so far. Um and I think you're gonna really come out come out the back back end of this like having a kind of like slightly greater appreciation for what we're doing, you know, what the actual Byron talks a bit, I don't want to sort of preempt what he says and stuff, but about what the enterprise of telling stories really is about. Not what it should be any in any prescriptive sense but like and there's nothing wrong with just something just being entertainment that can lift people out of difficulties it can give them some relief from the circumstances of their life i'm not in any way denigrating that and i think me, me and byron have both gone on stage and told jokes that don't have any sort of transformative capacity except for like briefly helping the audience to forget 
that they're mortal creatures made out of temporary temporarily sentient aggregations of meat that are eventually going to die and rot back into the soil possibly um with no memory of uh, w- w- the beings they once were right and 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 sometimes you just tell a tell a gag do a pun and people get a temporary temporary relief from that terrible knowledge but also sometimes as Byron talks about you can shine a light on experiences people in the audience might not have had or you can re-humanize the kind of world around us that often we fill in people's backstories based on stereotypes and stock characters because there's a lot of people out there and it makes things easier it makes it easier to make snap decisions right we just kind of fill in people's backgrounds without knowing them uh, that's a natural human tendency and I feel like what I took one of the things one of the takeaways I got from this chat with Byron today is how stories can frustrate and complicate that tendency to think we understand who someone is and where they're coming from and give us pause and, and just encourage the beginnings of the the process of empathy which starts from the kind of objectively terrifying position of like I don't know I don't know what this person's deal is because as soon as you get to there that opens up all the possibility for connection and humanity and dialogue and love and humility and you know just kind of scooping out the kind of wet clay of the kind of mistakes and assumptions that we splatter down on top of someone that's just that that just not having just not imposing mistakes and errors in the first place just giving someone the 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 privilege of a clean slate of like a basic chariot charitable kind of like thoughts towards them on assuming that they are as real as you are so many of us including myself often don't do that with human beings around us with some human beings around us and we don't even notice we're doing it because it just is so of a piece with reality that we just see think we're seeing reality through a kind of clear lens i think what this talk today one of the things it's about and there's many other things it's about and some of those byron you explicitly kind of cops to and talks about is this power for stories be they you know quote unquote true ones you know or autobiography or just narratives about human beings they can remind us of the kind of riches of people's inner lives that are just not available to us as human beings and there's you know there's there's been talk about you know the power of fiction and the novel even in you know i've heard it suggested that you know the rise of fiction and the novel as a form was part of what they refer to as the change in sensibilities that made us not set up public hangings anymore that wasn't palatable you know that's one argument that, that, that people started to 
to have feelings that some other people were as real as they were. Now, I, I don't think that process, we only have to look at the world to see that process is by, by no means finished. It's, that's not completed. We're not all now living in this. I'm not even sure that, that is true. It's a nice theory. It's an interesting one. It's certainly a fascinating sort of counterintuitive thing that makes you go, oh, it lets you look at history in a new way, right? I'm not copying to the um, to the veracity of it, but but you know, I suppose what I'm kind of like uh, noodling around is the idea that empathy is good, and rethinking our ideas is good, and humour is one of the ways of kind of softening someone up to you know humour sometimes just helps people drop their defences so you can start that process of really working on their heart and uh, yeah I think you're going to love this talk because Byron kind of we get into all of that and we talk about performance we talk about mental health and anxiety and panic attacks we talk about yeah just it was a lovely talk and I'm I'm already feeling nostalgic about it, even though it only just happened. Uh, I hope you enjoy it. Um, here's my chat with Byron Vincent. It's difficult to... It's been weird asking people, how are you? Or even just like ending an email with like... It's like saying, I hope you're, I hope you're well. And then you go... I hope you're doing well. And then you're going to go, does that sound insensitive? So then I've been like downgrading it to like, I hope you're okay. But then that sounds like I'm like, I'm bait. Like I, I don't want any more for them than that. Yeah. I have this exact um, same internal dialogue when I'm, when I'm saying goodbye to people. Like all you, all you really want to say to people is that you, you, you like them and you hope, nice things happen to them <laughs> but if you if you use if you use those words you just sound like a a, a drunk toddler <laughs> yeah. yeah but maybe like maybe to- maybe maybe toddlers kind of like actually without having kind of like learned the complicated aristocratic artifice of the of, of, of real world socializing Managed to kind of get it in the middle of the bat in a way that adults don't. Oh, like um, I like you, and I hope good things happen to you. It's like a, on the face of it, a nice and honest sentiment, right? Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm sure they do. I'm sure that we are um, the product of uh, of um, being corrupted by a lifetime of letdown, and that is inhibited our ability to communicate sincerely and honestly i'm absolutely sure of that um but on the other hand uh it's a long time since i've shat myself so fuck you toddlers <laughs> so if you if we <laughs> i like that the the main aim in in life is not to aspire to rise up to the innocence of children but to <laughs> denigrate them in such a way that <laughs> I'll, I'll always punch up that's the rule of comedy isn't it um so yeah i'm, I'm doing all right mate i'm uh, it's it's uh it's the last the last couple of days have been just i really need to not look at the news or twitter 
that's the deal at the moment. Why do you think it's? Why do you think it's so? I, I'm really if 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 you don't mind me sort of just jumping into some stuff and then I'll okay yeah yeah no worries. Um, why do you think it's so hard to not look like? Basically, on Twitter, on social media, on the news, right? Yeah. Like, people on Twitter, like, heavy users of Twitter call it uh, this hell site, right? Like, nobody on Twitter goes, I, I, lo- I love this place. Like, everyone's like, this horrible website. People hate it. It is like just a truism and a commonplace to say, this place is horrible. The news makes people feel bad. So we know all that, right? Yeah. Like, we, we know all that. Why is it so difficult to look away? Because we, I think there's something really fundamental about, um, in terms of our survival, <laughs> that has a desire to be informed about everything that's going on. If we, there's something beyond reason that says that our subconscious tells us that if we're informed, then we can protect ourselves against the danger. But the problem is, in this case, the thing that is informing us is also the danger. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. yeah. It's oh, unfortunate, no. Tim. <laughs> that's, that's really, that's, it's, yeah, I guess we're kind of, I, 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 I guess we're kind of wired for kind of like small groups who are all in visual contact. Yeah. Not like massively electronically distributed networks of tens of thousands of strangers well uh, we, we've got we have this really unfortunate battle this dichotomy going on in us i think that we we're desperate for connection we want we want con- connection um but we aren't sophisticated enough to realize that it's it's kind of intimacy that we actually want it's it's, it's connection um, it's the quality, it's, it's quality connection that we want. And so that, I think that's why we have a desire to, well, me and you specifically, <laughs> uh, have a desire to perform and and be in front of more than like two or three people. I'm, I'm you know, I'm 45, Tim, and I'm only really just realising that actually I don't want that. There's not really, there isn't any nourishing benefit to 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 having a lot of people know who you are um, or or to having a very wide social group what is what is important is the quality of our relationships and not the quantity i think i always thought that at the back of my mind yeah. because i thought like oh success success won't make you happy money won't make you happy you kind of know those things rationally yeah yeah but um uh I can't remember. I I I want to want to say it was like Saint Augustine or something that had the kind of like give me chastity and piety, but not yet. Yeah. Um, thing of like going, but what I'd quite like to do is like get really famous and rich, and then like look around one day, uh, and go, oh no, foolish me. But I'd like to learn that lesson. <laughs> through kind of like unbelievable success i i exactly i want to i want to be i want to be disappointed by it all but i want to be disappointed from a from a 20 bedroom mansion in a swimming pool <laughs> sipping a uh a, a daiquiri that uh, a butler has waded through the deep end to bring to me 
it's like i i'm i'm quite happy to like do a like youtube broadcast live broadcast to my millions of followers and go full of remorse and go <laughs> i've made a terrible mistake gang <laughs> um yeah and 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 cuz it just and also cuz that you never you never actually think you'll get to somewhere where you'll have the luxury of people going oh you're really great i'm really enjoying what you do and then you go oh this so can can we like wheel back a little bit and go when did you first get a sense that that performing was something that you might want to do um i was incredibly shy as a as a young kid if anybody knocked on the door i would scramble upstairs and i'd hide under my bed until they uh, went away um and and uh, but i was also from a very young age told that i was exceptional um with no this was not born of any basis in fact <laughs> it was it was just like um it was just so my my nan um who's sadly no longer with us uh is um has got gypsy heritage and she was a semi-professional tarot card reader and tea leaf reader and all of that business. And so that and that kind of passed down to my mum as well. And the day that I was born, my eyes followed the nurses around the room and you know kids are, are blind. So that this is the this is the legend. <laughs> and 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 my mum and my uh nan took this to be a sign that I had the gift. <laughs> and so I was kind of the, and lots of little weird things happened that that they just apportioned like s supernatural um abilities like they they decided that i that that i was uh special and so i was told that i was special and I, and 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 um and so uh despite being tiny and being um incredibly shy and dyslexic and everything was all the arrows were pointing the other way that i wasn't special but at home i was being told that i was special so i think that fed into the idea that i had something to say uh, and and a desire to communicate it as misguided as it was <laughs> and so whenever i mean this is a it, everything that I'm saying is weird. <laughs> it all <laughs> it all came out kind of sideways. And so I was raised in a household of women. Um and I had one uncle who was a bodybuilder. He had a mullet and a, a and a and a pencil mustache and would t uh, wear tight fitting tracksuits and come round and try and encourage me to play football. But he was kind of the only man on the scene. And he would come round to try and. Sounds like he was like he was doing like, but he was do he was he was doing like the heavy lifting for, for he was he was representing masculinity like he was going in hard. He was compensating. Not just not just masculinity, but seventies masculinity. We're talking high karate and mutton chops. You know what I mean? The serious <laughs> business. And um and so like he he would, yeah he would he would come round and oh man so like. <laughs> He would come round and I would only come downstairs 
to perform. Like, I wouldn't come down and have a talk. I wouldn't come down and actually go out and play football. I would come down in a silver lame ball gown and essentially do, like, a 20-minute 20 minute, 20 minute, uh, drag act. <laughs> and he must have been uh, like, what? This is on a council... This is in a, on a post-industrial northern council estate, you know. It's no wonder I used to get beaten up regularly. That's amazing. That's that's amazing, Byron. So, yeah. And was this this when you say you were performing? Was this something that was this idea to do it? One that you dreamt up, or was it at the instigation of? Where do you think you got the idea to well, uh, come down and, and and perform in a ball gown? Um, uh, my nan gave me the ball gown. It's a silver lame off the shoulder number <laughs> and uh, she was tiny she's like a little sparrow and um and so it kind of wasn't that big on me and so yeah I, it was all of my own volition but it wasn't in any way discouraged put it that way that's that's i mean that's that sounds re- that sounds really that sounds really nice seems a not strong enough adjective but that sounds Really, it sounds lovely that you that you felt comfortable and happy doing that. Could you talk a little bit more about? Um, you talked about like the gift and this. Yeah, <laughs> I suppose like seeing signs in things and significance in things, and it strikes yeah. me that that is a form of storytelling. Yeah, you know, finding uh, finding significance and drawing stuff together. And I, I wondered if you could talk a bit more about how that kind of like manifested in your. In your life, because on one hand, it's kind of like looking back, it must feel like very unusual. But on the other hand, it's so integrated in your daily life that it's kind of not a big thing. My experience when I've had people like that around me, it's sort of not a big thing to them. Yeah. And they can like very quickly switch from clean doing like the line cleaning at the pub to channeling a spirit. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think when you're a child and you're looking for validation off your caregivers, um, you will be driven to um, behaviour that that gleans that validation from them. So when they said I had the gift, then obviously I'm like, yep, sure. <laughs> this, yeah. If this is what makes me interesting and... and, and um, uh, gets me the attention and validation I need from from the people I love. Then obviously I'm going to be like, yeah, mate, <laughs> sure I got the gift. Um, and so I remember being kind of six or seven, and my nan taking me to a spiritualist church, which uh, was this community centre on the outskirts of Preston in Lancashire, and it was just full of. Um, blue rinse nanas um and they all were grieving clearly that this was it was even at that age it was obvious to me that this was a process of grief and that there was a a a, a profound sadness to it in a way but also it was it was hilarious (laughs) because because uh, and i loved it also there's there's a lot of reasons to like it one uh, positive attention from a bunch of lovely nanas to 
free biscuits, and three, and probably the most importantly, was it is the best show you have ever seen in your life. You got like Marion and Enid, like uh, choir blue rinses, floral dresses, pop socks, the whole uh, uh, Lancashire Nana look getting up there um, and all of a sudden channeling, for some bizarre reason, they all had uh, Native American spirit guides. But Unfortunately, the only experience of uh, of the Native American experience was through pretty racist nineteen uh, forties westerns. So they'd get up there and they'd do the full nineteen forties western Native American voice, and um, and I remember at that age as well thinking, what are all these uh, tribal chiefs doing in a community center just outside of Preston? It was you know it's an odd place, odd place for for them to congregate. But what I did understand it, it did sort of it did sort of inform my uh, it did inform my understanding that narrativizing things um, was a form of catharsis. Because I I, th- I feel like there's just like a because at least there I mean I feel a bit like you that I I've got a very ambivalence isn't quite right because that sounds like I don't well not ambivalence in in the sense of indifference but like I have two very different reactions to the same thing and one is like there's a, like an element of like bizarreness to it and uh, and I have my skeptical side but on the other I'm like it is actually very rare I feel like in my life to see people directly confronting the existence of mortality right yeah yeah exactly even if they're doing it in a weird way at least they're like going some people have died do you remember those people we used to know who are now dead do you know i'm grieving like we can actually talk about that and they've got some some kind of narrative that makes sense of it whereas a lot of the time certainly in britain there's it's just so taboo that people just shut up about it. Like, don't talk about it at all. Exactly, exactly. It's it, of co- so. Of co- and the thing is about all kinds of. If you repress something, it's not going to go away. <laughs> especially, especially the the one inevitable thing in our lives. You know what I mean? It doesn't go anywhere. It's just gonna. Our feelings about it are just gonna come out sideways, and that's what that is. You know, it, it's just. It's just our feelings around grief are coming out in, in in a peculiar way because they've never been allowed to be addressed and when do you remember like the point when you started when you got a sense that performing on uh, on you know writing your own stuff creating stuff yourself could be something that you could you could do you know that could be something that could come from you that you that you might actually be able to quote unquote i suppose do with a capital d i I moved around a lot as a kid and um the very very first primary school i went to i always hated school i just hated being around people i've got an anxiety disorder and i think even though um it was exacerbated later on in life by some quite severe traumas it was always really there i i i screamed the first day i, I went to school so badly that that uh, my dad who was still around at the point um 
had to drive me home. My mum sent me straight back. <laughs> but but yeah, he was like, I can't, I, you know, like I, I was, and I was quite a quiet, I was very well behaved, quiet, placid kid normally, but I was so uncomfortable being around so many people that, uh, that I really kicked off. Um, but I did like one-on-one -on -one interaction with my teachers and I, and I was kind of, um, I was a bit of a teacher's pet uh, and so, and so, again, I was getting, uh, I guess, um, validation from them, and they liked um, a, a little spark of creativity or whatever. I, I enjoyed drawing and I enjoyed writing little poems, and I've no idea where that came from, um, but it was something I, I, I didn't need to be encouraged to do. But I, I, I very much. Early on, I saw that it was something that I would be rewarded for and also took me away from the chaos and tumult of the classroom and the other kids, which for some reason made me feel deeply uncomfortable. Yeah, it, sound, it sounds like with both of those things, with the sort of uh, spiritualist mediumship kind of displays and your kind of like gift and with school as well that there's like uh, you're slowly by the adults around you being taught a repertoire of behaviors that um that like you say get rewarded that somehow get you um pull, pulled away from the uh from the hubbub of of, of of like stressful confusing other kids which it sounds like you were less comfortable around children than you were around adults um yeah well it, it it all became apparent in later life kind of what that's about sort of i mean there's still a lot of ambiguity around it but but yeah i am I'm, I'm still to this day as you know tim i, I like i like one-on-one -on -one interactions with people but stick another person in the room and i'll fall to pieces stick another five in and i really don't know what to do with myself it's been there's there's a few explanations to this. One is that I've got a diagnosis of uh, PTSD, um, and so that I'm always subconsciously assessing threat. So if there's if there's one person in the room, then that's an, my brain can deal with that quite easily. But if there's two, three, four, and then you get into a crowd, then the the subconscious burden of that is so great that I'm unable to focus and and offer anything positive. And that makes sense, only I didn't have a diagnosis of PTSD when I started school, so it doesn't make sense in in, in terms of why I found it so difficult as a, as a kid, you know. Uh, well, I guess my, my next question would be then, what do you think would draw, what do you think drew you towards what, you know, uh, naively would seem like your nightmare <laughs> profession, which is regularly getting up on stage in front of an actual crowd of strangers who are being explicitly invited to judge you while you try to keep them at bay using only your words. Yeah. Like that, is t that is a terrifying, anxiogenic scenario to someone who considers themselves pretty robust psychologically, right? Yeah. Yeah, and, and, uh, 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 yeah, and I'm a little puddle of anxiety, so why? I guess there are... Uh, many reasons. One um, would be stubbornness and contrary. I'm a contrarian in that sense that that um, like 
I, I'd hate being told that I can't do something or that I'm incapable of doing something. Uh, and especially if the person that's telling me I can't do something is me, <laughs> you know, that's that. So, so I needed to, I needed to prove to myself that I was, that I was capable of um, communicating because uh, another big motivation is that, um, another big motivation is that I was, uh, I came from a sort of voiceless community you know, I'd been very poor and then I'd gone from being poor to being a drug addict and 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 socially, economically and logistically even isolated from from society and, and, and that nothing I did or said was in any way valid. So I had that chip on my shoulder, I guess. And another uh, important reason and, and one that a lot of us have, I think, as performers is a sense of control. When you get up and speak to a group of people, it's a very controlled environment, and uh, what you say is tends to be scripted. So you get to present the best of yourself. I'm in real life um, full of anxiety that is very prohibitive and prevents me from communicating in a way that is eloquent sometimes, or prevents me from communicating at all. And that's very frustrating. So it was it was my personal rebellion against those um, inhibitions, I guess. It's really hard to it's it's like it's it's really hard to to explain to people like I or even explain it to myself. Actually, I don't think I really understood that until I was talking. I was talking to a, a neuroscientist actually at the anxiety lab in UCL and. I was saying, do you think, like, by going on stage so much, have I taught myself, Did I have I been training my brain to be anxious? Because I'm, like, casting around the audience to see who isn't paying attention, yeah. you know. Um, you know, I'm working up adrenaline. And he was like, well, I, I think you might be doing... It's also possible that you were drawn to it because it gives you a sense of control that you don't have in real life. You have this black black box, like, environment your role social role is really prescribed the audience is is and there's things that can go wrong right but they're just limited compared to real life where there's no script and I was like oh no like because I always find performing stressful and so I would never have really like nailed it until recently as something that I was doing to control anxiety yeah because you think well, I get nervous before I go on. I get nervous days before I go on. Like, why would I be? But you're right that there's that it's actually this heightened, almost like a kind of parody or satire of how just interacting with people in a normal social situation feels in our heads. Now everyone really is staring at us. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I re- uh, watching what we're doing. I remember you. I remember you saying that to me uh, a few years ago. That that it, when you go into a room full of people and they're all staring at you and expecting you to entertain them, then it validates your anxiety. <laughs> you know, there's a yeah. there's a, all of a sudden this this purposeless anxiety that we carry around with us. Um, all of a sudden, there's a reason for its existence, and so the world in that moment makes more sense than it does for the rest of the time. And and I relate to that. And and, and there is a thing about control. 
when I was about uh, 16, 17, uh, I, was, I lived in a, a kind of, it wasn't a homeless shelter, but it was a, a, a flat share run by a charity that was dealing with homeless young men um, who, were, who were problematic, <laughs> put it that way. And, um, and every, on, it was completely unsupervised, which was a terrible idea. And everybody um, had grown up um, to a greater or lesser degree around violence. And so, so it was a very violent uh, environment. And every Saturday, fr- well, actually, most weeknights at 2 a.m., there's a club in Preston called Tokyo Joe's, and we lived across from it. At 2 a.m., all the lads, and there was, because we were an un- unsupervised group of 16-year-olds, the entirety of town would come and hang out at our flat. And all the, all the lads who'd grown up fighting would go and uh, stand outside this club called Tokyo Joe's, wait for people to come out, and for, specifically for the purpose of having a fight. Like we're going down to Tokyo Joe's for a fight, and 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 I used to talk myself up because you had to in that situation, uh, uh, but usually be able to blag my way out of it for one reason or another, just sneak off or do something. But this one night, there's a couple of real sociopaths around, and there's no getting out of it. I'd have just got them battered anyway, and and these were not people you wanted to get battered by. And and I was, I had to go, I had to go down and stand in front of Tokyo Joe's, and wait for everybody to come out to come out, knowing that I was going to have this fight, and I didn't want to fight. For the listeners at home, I am a slight uh, individual. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not a big guy, uh, and 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 I'm not. Even though I did a good job at pretending to be aggressive when I was that age, it wasn't innate. It wasn't something I didn't enjoy fighting, um, and there were some people that did. <laughs> uh, so, so I had I had this. I was doing this equation in my head, like what can I do to make this situation uh, go by without a terrible thing happening? And what I ended up doing, my plan, Tim, <laughs> was to run up to the bouncer. And chin him, like so. Because <laughs> the way I figured it is that the bouncer was massive, and I was like, he was the biggest guy there, and I was so tiny that he'd just think, this, this isn't, this is no threat, and and he'll just like hold me down. I'll get kudos from my mates for uh, for for trying to spark the bouncer out, and 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 I won't get like. I won't, get, you know. I I'd been around a lot of fights and violence, and I'd been in fights and stuff and I'd seen people get their heads kicked in and been you know put in comas and bad things and I didn't want and I thought that was so the you best felt one. like there was a chance that the, the 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 bouncer would be most likely to have sort of training to sort of like non-lethally suppress exactly your your attack exactly I was too like it would just, it would just be embarrassing for him to kick somebody's head in who was my size <laughs> so, <laughs> so I ran up so that's what I did I ran over and I punched the bouncer oh fucking hell and and he Jesus he went he went he grabbed me uh, well he tried to gra- he lunged to grab me and he ran off and all hell broke loose and we we all ran down an alley and it's all these these lads who who were who were fighters battlers as we used to call them and uh, and and it went exactly as it went exactly as 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 I planned it like they were all like oh no way Byron I saw you and really 
it was a it was a, a very calculated way of 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 not getting absolutely battered. So it's that I mean when we are confronted with these um when we are confronted with our fears <laughs> our desire to control them can come out in unexpected ways is the point i guess fuck that's a really that's a i so I, just as you end were ending that parable i was like oh i i i see the analogy here like in some ways like performing is like running up and punching it, a bouncer i mean it's I mean, yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna say, I, I should say it's probably not quite as hardcore as punching a bouncer outside Tokyo I, Joe's at two a.m. But... I think it's every bit as hardcore. I think it's every bit as hardcore. I don't think it's any less scary. Can you talk a little bit about the kind of, uh, you know, the kind of poet? Because the first time I saw you do poetry, I think the first time I saw you do poetry was in Oxford yeah. at that kind of like little rotunda building uh-huh. um, uh, with there was like a group of poets on. And um, I, it was just a, it was an odd venue that was like a round. It was like a grain silo or something. I don't really understand. And with audience sat all round and poets in a kind of almost like well shape kind of like at the bottom and a bunch of people and that was the first time I saw you perform and I was like holy shit he's really good um uh not that I had particular expectations about you but just like generally you know when you see people uh performing on the scene there's some people that you see and you really click with their stuff there's other people you see and you go that's not for me um how did you start like i wonder if you could just talk about like what you wrote what you what you tended to do what you tended to do performance poetry about and um how you started to construct that and build that into a set um yeah it was a bit gladiatorial that little rotunda wasn't it i i I was expecting people to jab me with spears and stuff but um it, it so i started doing performance poetry uh, first time around in the early 90s and um and I was fresh off the council estate back then and I did very angry political uh, rants that I I don't know I'm more generous with myself about that stuff these days um but we're very naive I, you know, I wasn't, in, I wasn't in any way educated, um, and I had no concept of what poetry should be or or is. I was just venting my spleen, um, and I quickly realised that it was it was a very nice feeling when people uh, laughed. <laughs> so I started making them slightly more humorous. And then I took a big break for like 10 years. I just, uh, stopped doing it to, uh, uh run raves actually. And, <laughs> and then, and then I came back, uh, and, uh, around that time when, when, when we, when we met, um, uh, and in my head, I was slightly more sophisticated by then, <laughs> but I don't think I was, I, I don't think I was any better educated, um, and it was. I was trying to move away from my roots. I was trying to move away from from 
being defined as this kid from a council estate. Uh, and so I very much disguised that and I dressed like a little Indy Cindy and did little surreal vignettes. Occasionally I'd do something that was uh, broadly explored class. Um, but mostly I was writing stuff that was uh, funny and... Really more about a sort of interesting collage of language than it was about a political or ideological concept. Making the audience laugh, I, I do feel like it is probably the most... It's the easiest response to detect in the moment yeah. in a way that evoking any other reaction or emotion... I suppose apart from apart from out from outrage or anger like if the audience turn into a like restless mob then you do know that that's happened but like for the most part it's of, of the kind of positive responses you can get out of an audience the one thing that that that, that humor has for it is like it has this it has this we make a noise when when we when we find something amusing right the audience go ah ha ha and you go oh okay that landed whereas something being understood or appreciated or resonating is much harder. So I think for me anyway, like it, it, it always, it always felt, I don't want to denigrate humor by saying it felt safer, yeah. but it felt more knowable and certain if something was working and landing. I felt like, cause you're kind of carried buoyed up by the noises the audience are making. Yeah, exactly. And, and if you're a, a naturally anxious person, then that validation carries you through what can be, uh, a quite scary as we've already mentioned experience so so unfortunately what I pandered to it I think and it pulled me away from the things that I actually wanted to talk about um, uh, don't get me wrong I had a lot of fun doing uh, comedic performances and I don't regret that but it wasn't um, a, ultimately it wasn't a very fulfilling experience can you that's a really interesting point you make about pandering because I, I hear that used sometimes and I know we've talked about this a bit before but I yeah. wonder if we we could unpack it a little bit because I wonder if you could just reflect on what the difference is or how you discern between sort of to what extent do you try and give the audience an experience they enjoy and to when does that turn into pandering and at what point you know, how much is it your responsibility to make the audience feel comfortable, especially when discussing topics like if you're talking to a, addressing a middle class audience yeah. and you're talking about class yeah. and deprivation, how much do you make them feel comfortable so they don't feel threatened by that? Or if you're talking to a, uh, a group of sort of uh, neurotypical uh, like uh, mentally uh, reasonably stable uh, audience, how much do you make them feel comfortable about 
uh, experiences of mental illness or things like that. I, I wonder where the balance is for you and how you sort of negotiate that. Ultimately, I want to communicate ideas and I don't see that um, making people feel comfortable or making them laugh is, is any... That's that's not pandering. What is pandering... Uh, um, pandering is is when you pull yourself away from the ideas that you want to communicate uh, and replace that with things that will make the audience feel comfortable but are superficial. That's th- that's what I'm talking about. And so really, um, <clears throat> you know, I want to make the audience laugh and I want to make the audience feel comfortable in order to for them to be receptive to the concepts that I want to broach. But if I remove those concepts and just keep the ephemera around them that is that is that's you know light entertainment really there's nothing wrong with light entertainment but it's not what i want to do and so i would be i would be uh, pandering if if that's all i gave so so like for you then p- pandering is not it's not actually necessarily dictated by it's it's contextual right yeah, it yeah, depends yeah. on what you want exactly. and it sounds again like you're talk you're talking a little bit like when you started performing or when you had this sort of you came back and you were doing your second your second kind of crack at performing yeah. it sounds a bit like again you were having an experience similar to the one you'd had in your family with your gift and the one you'd had in school which is being steered not unreasonably to move your repertoire towards what you felt people wanted, what they would re- reward, and uh, and and that and that kind of like shifted. It sounds like you had to kind of like do a bit of work to get your sense of self in the midst of all those forces, like rewarding different things. Oh yeah, I mean, in both of those experiences and and in life, um, it's it's. Uh, it's been a an interesting thing to explore actually and i've looked i've been looking at it quite a bit recently because i i moved around a lot like i said as a kid and so i had to be quite chameleonic although m- most of these environments that i was in were underclass environments uh, and it could be argued that those environments are not particularly nuanced <laughs> All every time you enter, and you know, I went to so many different schools, landed on so many different estates. Um, I had to be chamele- chameleonic. And if you'd have asked me as a child if I had a sense of identity, I would have said, Yeah, yeah, I do. But really, a lot of the time, I was adapting to my environment, and so. I think it was a, a very similar process in, when it came to performance. Yeah, that 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 really. Well, not only not only was I adapting to being a performer, but I was transitioning f- from being in an a, a very specific sort of underclass environment to being in a very specific creative middle class environment. And that's like moving to a different country, Tim. It's learning an entire new mode of being and an entirely new mode of communication and and existing in a way that is pretty alien. And so, like, it's not just about... I was learning about the people I was surrounded by and about my audience on the, on the fly, you know, on the spot. So, uh, and, 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 and whilst I was learning... 
you know, I was trying to be accepted as well. And some things were lost because that's a, quite a lot of stuff to juggle. I think some things were lost in terms of um, my, what I, my consideration of my output. Yeah, I it it that's it. I want. I wonder if it because it's that's the thing is like by trying to sort of like communicate or translate anything and meet your audience where they are and all of these things, you're constantly having to consider like trade offs and how do you make this an experience where they don't check out emotionally or whatever or they get defensive. I wonder if can you think of any of the stuff that you did or did in performance where you felt is there any something that you like looking back you feel particularly you didn't compromise or did what you you look back and you feel sort of proud that 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 managed to survive the kind of tr- transit from what you wanted to communicate to reaching people and delivering the message or the ideas that you wanted it to i'm i'm getting there i'm I'm getting there i'm more there now than i than i ever was when i was doing performance poetry Uh, when i was doing performance poetry obviously i was hiding a lot of stuff i was hiding a lot of i was hiding the fact uh in the early days at least i was hiding the fact that i have got these uh quite um significant uh, mental health diagnoses i was just i was just like really pleased every time I got through a gig and didn't fall to pieces <laughs> that was my, my main consideration was like wow I'm actually getting away with this because you never came across like like that on stage at all I mean you were getting away with it because I always when you told me that when I first knew you yeah and you'd say stuff like that I just thought you were kind of modest to a fault I thought I just thought you were kind of putting that that on <laughs> to not make other people feel uncomfortable that you just kind of smashed it that you were going you know you'd go on you'd like kill it you'd laugh all the way through you'd have these great set piece jokes moving through different poems you'd start off with some like some nice what I always think of as like uh not just with your poems but just generally I always think of like broad opening poems as a kind of funnel that get the audience to relax they go okay this person is going to not I'm going to enjoy this and then kind of move into some some more uh, 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 kind of like some deeper pieces and you know early early on when I saw you'd often end with your kind of like big epic uh, anarchy in nowhere town and which had like some funny bits but would like build up to some bits of like moments of like real uh, tragedy and anger that felt really earned and had some amazing had all that kind of like wordplay and richness it felt like you never really compromised on you never patronized the audience never compromised on making it like textually dense and interesting and full of imagery while still being a very much a performance piece and then you'd come off and and go yeah and say just what you said then or like i'm i'm, I'm glad i su- su- survived and stuff and it it felt i all i assumed at the time that you were kind of just saying that to be nice to not make us feel like <laughs> oh sh- oh shit like this person's just operating at another level uh that you were going oh well actually i was quite scared secretly i assumed that was a joke but you're i i know now and you're saying that it yeah that it isn't very sincere it was yeah i was ter- i was terrified a lot of the time and 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 to the point i mean i think uh, to the point sometimes it did get the better of me um uh, there was a, a night i think you were there in in at latitude 
and um it was about 2007 i think 2008 maybe and scroobius pip and dan lasac were just becoming a big thing and they'd played on the main stage and uh, scroobius pip announces that 11 30 in the evening he will be closing the poetry tent so everybody should come and see this new thing called spoken word <laughs> and so he does that yeah. but he wasn't on at 11 30 i was on at 11 30 he was on at 11 so everybody rocked up for my set the entire festival seemed to decamp and i had basically i got about a minute into maybe a bit more into my set and I had a panic attack on stage <laughs> in front of like i don't know couple of thousand people i don't know a lot of people um and uh and so uh, and the, the can i ask what a, yeah. can I, I yeah can i ask about what a panic attack looks like or feels like for you because i know like that now having spoken to a lot of people yeah. who have panic attacks i've realized that um despite what we read in the literature they're quite like heterogeneous in in terms of how yeah like could people see you were having a panic attack because when i have a panic attack when i um you know touchwood used to have panic attacks um you could have probably told i was having a panic attack in the next county like i mean like ah, i can't breathe ah! like like it was like it was like so it was it was like the most the most muppet like a human being can be crossed with like a kind of like toddler having a tantrum like screaming clutching my throat like the most like like you imagine like the most hammy amdram kind of like community theater shakespearean uh, like person doing a, a death scene that's like how my panic attacks look from the outside that that's i'm assuming that wasn't what happened to you on stage i don't remember that happening no no um i think i think you were backstage every everybody was backstage and and um uh what what well i guess i need to sort of explain why this is the the way my panic attacks manifest. The, I was in a very precarious situation for a very long time and I was in a lot of life-threatening situations as a teenager. Um, very, very violent situations and surrounded by very predatorial people. So any visual sign that... I was nervous was just not acceptable. <laughs> it's just, it wasn't gonna, it would have been very dangerous for me. So, so I had learned when I was young, when I was very young, then my panic attacks would, would be visual because it was, it was a thing that, you know, you would see my breath and uh, uh, you would hear me. And, and I, I uh, one thing that I still do to this day is I've got a lot of um, anxiety vocal tics. I'll just be, I'll, I'll be like, <laughs> in fact, me and my, me and my, hmm. me and my partner have both got anxiety disorders. And uh, sometimes, <laughs> like sometimes we'll just be in the kitchen and I'll make a like, noise and then she'll be like, ah, <laughs> like, and I, I think it's, I think it's quite endearing and beautiful, but like, um, it's, it's like, like Furbies talking to each other. <laughs> yeah, like terrified Furbies. And, um, and so, uh, for years, I, I, I really, really trained myself hard not to display any uh, symptoms. So what I do, uh, even to this day, actually, when, I, when I'm having a panic attack, I go very still and very quiet. 
And so, um, uh, I, I, so, so, so I'm repressing, uh, you know, my heart's racing, uh, my breathing wants to get deeper. Um, and sometimes I stop, actually, uh, what I do is I stop breathing. I don't, I stop breathing so I can pass out. Um, so I stop breathing and, and my adrenaline goes and my heart rate goes, but you, but you probably, unless you know me well, won't see what's occurring so um i choked on i mean that's like and that's legit one of the three sort of like walter cannon's fight flight or freeze right yeah yeah like the third response is freeze yeah yeah, yeah yeah that's like a deep deep instinct to if you can't run away from the predator and you can't fight it yeah just try to not draw its attention by moving yeah yeah, yeah. and maybe it might think you're dead yeah that's, 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 yeah, that's, that's it. <laughs> and, um, and so, uh, yeah, on that occasion, I just, I just stopped talking, stopped breathing. Um, the compare who's a mutual friend, uh, <laughs> of ours was, uh, Yanni, uh, was on the toilet at the time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I think somebody was banging on the portaloo and he kind of, Got to come running on stage, pulling his dungarees up, <laughs> <laughs> and sort of like put his arm around me and walk me off stage. Um, uh, and yeah, it was it was pretty. Even to this day, uh, I have cringes on my cringes about it. Um, I mean, I've I've I, on 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 latitude stage, I've. I think something happened. So I think some one time somebody like swung their arm and accidentally knocked my glasses off while I was doing a poem and I just stopped doing the poem. <laughs> and and they were like, Are you gonna finish the poem? And I was like, No, no, I don't I like I think it just triggered something in me and then they I think I think like the audience ended up having to say, Go go on, finish it and I had to like, <laughs> like I was uh, I, I I like like they had to like bring me out of like a kind of like funk and 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 yeah i mean i've had i think like a lot of the time on the latitude stage as well i was sometimes i was too too drunk to see the kind of shame that maybe would have been appropriate like i i i, I so yeah yeah we've all that, we've all been I, there i i i was doing a, a performance with nathan filer um at latitude once and we both got so drunk that the second like two seconds before we went on i had to vomit in my jacket pocket (laughs) (laughs) and then walk on stage hello hello audience (laughs) (laughs) oh my gosh it's like kind of awesome and it's kind of awesome and And i used to get so scared and then like last time i went to latitude i wasn't nervous at all and I, and it was only when I walked on stage, I was like, I haven't prepared anything. I'm supposed to be doing this podcast. And I was like, oh, I ha- what am I doing? Like, I haven't, I haven't prepared any, I'm, I'm supposed to be on here for an hour and a half. And what, and I, and I re- only as I walked on stage, I realised I just decided I was going to ad lib yeah. for 90 minutes. What? And that's like where your anxiety is left and you go, oh, you were oh, you were kind of trying to protect me a little bit. Like, yeah. a small amount of, like, arousal before this, going, hey, Tim, do you think you better think broadly about what you might say <laughs> but there's in a, front of this audience? There's a there's a difference now uh, in, in my attitude to uh, life and performance. I, I was living quite dishonestly then, not because uh, I'm a dishonest person, but because um, <laughs> I... I, I 
I couldn't allow. I was very frightened of of telling people about what was going on with me, or you know, uh, telling people about my personal history, telling telling people about my illness. All of that was was deeply repressed. And now, if I'm nervous on stage, so I could. I, I was, and and I didn't know that I was allowed to be. I was still. A hangover from my formative experiences was that I didn't know that I was allowed to be nervous. You know what I mean? Or show the fact that I was, that I was. And now I can just, if I'm on stage and I'm feeling a whatever way, I'll just express it. Not in a not in a maudlin way or a way that <laughs> you know. I'll be like, hey guys, <laughs> let me tell you about my day. Um, but but I I can communicate something in a way that's that's honest. Um. Uh, that and kind of thing is so such a relief to there'll be a, people in the audience for whom that is actually a huge relief to hear someone say that on stage as well. I know that because of the number of sad men who approach me after gigs and go <laughs> and give me a hug and go thank you and I'm like yeah. and I'm I'm mocking I'm mocking them and that's not it's it's supposed to be self-deprecating rather than an attack on them yeah. but like sometimes. Well, you've, I'm sure you've had it too. People just yeah. really appreciate having heard some aspect of their life reflected back at them. We want, we want, we want, um, we want to see some authenticity, and there's there's nothing. Uh, uh, Vulnerability is quite endearing as long as it doesn't uh, uh, tip over into awkwardness. And even then, there's a, you know there's there's room for manoeuvre. What do you think changed? for you because going from someone who was doing I suppose what felt from the outside quite slick sets yeah I don't mean in a I don't mean in a a, a superficial way but in a way the way you were maybe they were uh, very covering up your you but you were but, but you were you were all right but you in, in a way that you were able to perform in a way that made you seem more confident than you actually were yeah they were very to, well rehearsed being able to talk about some of that stuff and incorporate it into your work, what do you think changed for you? Because that seems... I, it's no surprise that you didn't feel comfortable sharing that stuff because of what you'd been through. Because if every life experience had told you that is a fucking bad idea. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess many things happened, but the big catalyst was i i had a very public hospitalization in um 2011 and there was not really any hiding it anymore so i either had a choice of like kind of just crawling away again <laughs> uh or or just em- embracing it and saying look right this is this is actually who I am and this is what I'm about and this is where I'm from. These are the experiences I've had. Uh, and the more I started to address those things, the more empowered I felt. And also I became analytical about them and realised that I had a right to be carrying some righteous indignation about some of my life experiences and that I in communicating them there was potential to um offer catharsis to people 
Um, or even put myself in a position where I'd be able to be of some practical support. And that was a massive, that was a massive change creatively as well. The main things I consider before embarking on a creative project these days are what social purpose does this serve? Why am I making this? Uh, and, and who is it serving? I'm just going to pause my talk with Byron, Byron quickly to um, give another shout out to the sponsor of today's episode, um, Arvin. Um, Arvin are one of my favourite organisations. I did my first, my first ever like creative writing lessons when I was 18 at an Arvin residential. And I've had the privilege of going back there and teaching years later with um several solo shows and a cup and, and, and a couple of books published under my belt and it remains a place that is just um magical with this huge capacity to this huge corpus of knowledge of i don't think there's anywhere in the world with the there's put the same commitment and time in to teaching people how to how to write the process of like helping people bring out the writers in themselves they didn't tell me to say any of that that's just my own that's my own that's my own personal take on it arvin's residential creative writing courses in devon shropshire and yorkshire will be back as soon as they're able to open in the meantime you can enjoy all the same acclaimed writing tutors insights and inspirations from your own home there are readings and masterclasses with authors such as Camilla Shamsi, Sebastian Fawkes, Joe Brand and Kit Noel, as well as whole digital writing weeks on topics like starting to write and writing your novel. You can also book one-to-one tutorials with an Arvin tutor of your choosing at your convenience for direct feedback on your work. Um, I, I'll say at, at the moment they've got some amazing uh, stuff coming up at the uh, time of recording they've got i mean if you're interested for example in um in non-fiction in doing a bit of memoir they're uh starting on the uh, sort of june 11th there's the um arvin at home Masterclass, excavating the self um with um kathy rensenbrink uh, i think you know like <laughs> we've all we've all we've all had some time to be with ourselves over the last cut couple of months and you know you might be thinking what do I do with all that um I think I've you know taught some memoir before and it's uh one of the most transformative experiences that I've had like working with those students um there, there are also um live guest readings uh with Q&As one you might be interested in is former guest on this podcast, Luke Wright. He's um, doing uh, Wednesday, July the 15th, uh, quarter past seven in the evening. Um, he's going to be doing a some perform, performing some of his poetry and then there'll be an interactive Q&A or host on Zoom. Um, so it's, it's a live event. It's not recorded. You can go on there, watch, um, and then ask him some questions based on his work and there's a bunch of of those uh, as well i think like that's another thing that i found 
really amazing doing um, Arvon Weeks are the are the guests. The, 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 you know, we'll have a guest writer come along, read from their work, and then do Q and A's with feedback um, to the audience, to, to the people who are there. Always sort of a stretch. It's just nice to get to talk to writers about their work as a writer yourself from the perspective of a writer um, with the expectation that you're going to be asking questions that might be a little bit craft-based, you know. So it's not like going to a book reading and then trying to build up your courage to be able to sort of put your hand up and ask something, but is it about the book that they're trying to sell today? No, this is explicitly about a kind of peer-to-peer teaching format that Arvind do so well. So, like, as it, look, I, I'm always happy to sort of sing the praises of um from the rafters regardless uh but at the moment they've got this absolutely fantastic uh corpus of online courses and uh performances that you can go and check out on their website arvan.org uh you know they might in some ways at the moment it might be even more accessible to you than it would normally be because you're able to do it from the comfort of your own home and you can benefit from the wisdom and experience of an organisation who have been doing this for donkey's years and know what they're doing in terms of creative writing pedagogy in a way no one in the world does. So yeah, if you want to go and check that out, I'll put a link in the show notes to today's episode. Um, but it's just Arvon, A-R-V-O-N dot org. And you can go and click on their Arvon at home uh, uh, prospectus, I guess it is, and uh, see what they've got up there, their programme of online events. I mean, I must admit, I've often had those thoughts, Byron, but they just tend to be, <laughs> they tend to be halfway into a project um, at sort of 3am in the morning as I look at the tatters of it around <laughs> me and I go, oh, what is the... What purpose does this serve? <laughs> who who does this help? Um, uh, that's but yeah, because I, I I know like some of your later stuff, and I know can I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about how you sort of take like your own life, yeah, and I I mean this in the personal sense, yeah. but also in the kind of broader sense, how what it means to sort of take parts of your life and um narrativize transform them in a way that makes them then yeah that, that, that someone else can engage with them how has that process been for you because i know it's been a sort of long road for you uh yeah it's it's uh not as easy as i originally assumed <laughs> talking just, just talking about myself aren't i surely i know about me um yeah like packaging things about yourself that are incredibly complex and emotionally complex and related to deep um, trauma (laughs) uh, with the idea that they might be able to serve a wider purpose. It's actually, (laughs) it's actually, it turns out it's quite difficult, Tim. (laughs) (laughs) And, and so, and so it's been a, it's been a, uh, a learning curve um and 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 one that i don't think will ever 
be easy or sit easy. And I don't think it ever should either. I don't think that because really when uh, you're communicating something about your life in order to highlight a social issue or a political issue, you are... Um, it, it can feel quite grubby taking a taking a, a deeply personal and traumatic life event and turning it into a palatable, um, purposeful story that can feel, uh, you know, so, so, so there's a very, there's a very fine line to be, to be observed. And you've got, uh, you know, when I started, I didn't know what I needed to be mindful of. I, I didn't know how to look after myself. I didn't know how to, I mean, uh, there was no attempt at all at, at self-preservation, self-care, or the idea that in putting things out into the open, that that they would then that people would then own them, and that I would no longer have any control over people communicated about the most vulnerable elements of myself. And although I'm quite robust around that. Um, it's it's still you know a difficult thing to navigate yeah it must it, it, I, I i there's that weird thing of starting to tell the the story yeah and then realizing that even though you kind of imagine that it's a it's just a it's just a it's just a a, a corpus of facts right that happened to you that's fine i'll just tell the yeah. facts yeah yeah then you've got to start making decisions about like who is this interesting to someone is this not interesting to someone and then you you start realizing at some stage various sort of tiers of audience you're like first readers and then people you work on it with and then actual audience are gonna respond to it and there'll be bits that they like and bits that maybe they don't aren't so interested in so what do i choose and then by choosing that you're then already making a like imprinting your authorship on it and making kind of moral and uh ideological judgments on it how do i represent other people and then you're kind of like i don't know this might not be your experience do tell me but like this thing of like i i, I still want i want people to like me yeah. Am I only putting this in or framing it this way because I kind of secretly know this is going to like bring, I'm going to come off in a good light here or maybe I'll appear sympathetic or I often have that issue where I'm like, what do I trust my own, do I trust my own um, motives? And especially when there's other human beings who I'm then presenting who maybe I haven't thought twice about how I present them in my head, in my own narrative of them, when I'm sharing that with other people, I'm like, what responsibility have I got to them? And I wonder if you could sort of reflect on that a little bit. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's a, it's, for me, it's always a, 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 a process that goes through um, increasingly rigorous questioning. I always start off by telling the story the way I want to tell it, and then it never, and that's like the, the, the you know, because because uh, especially when you're dealing with um, things that have been emotionally painful for for you, or when I've been dealing with things that are emotionally painful for me, the first thing that I need to do is 
get do the cathartic first right, which is just get it all off my chest in the way that I want to tell it that makes me look great. <laughs> yeah. And then get rid of that, you know? Then get rid of that. Like, and and by, by sort of edit number 10, um, you can tell the world uh, how you're a piece of shit. <laughs> it's, and, uh, you know, everything, everything becomes... Um, by edit number 10, everything's uh, brutally honest and uh and because you've because you've gotten it off your chest and you've gotten you've gotten your you've gotten your by that point you've worked through your personal pain and and it's and it's and you're it's that's way behind now you know that's 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 um that's in the that's in the in the rearview mirror and 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 you're no longer considering that stuff and it's all about the practical stuff and and really we all no, the reason that 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 we we scrutinize ourselves is because we know that we're working towards the truth. You know, we're working towards um, clarity and honesty as best as we can muster it through a single perception. You know, I, I wonder. I've had a few sort of psychologists and therapists and neuroscientists on the show to talk about things kind of adjacent to this, like James W. Pennebaker, who did about 20 years ago a lot of research into people writing about their most traumatic and upsetting experiences of their lives um, and the effect that had on their mental health but also their physical health in the months that follow they did lots of follow-ups on your immune system function and things like that coming out of a process where they were writing for fit and people wrote you know we talked about it on the show but people wrote incredibly people were sobbing as they wrote yeah. um and you know like one person i think one girl like had a memory from when she was six and her mum had said like tidy up your toys your, your your nan's coming round and she said I will I will and her mum said seriously your nan's coming round uh, and she didn't and her nan came round and slipped on one of the t- toys broke her hip got rushed to hospital and when they were about to operate she died wow and the and the girl was saying there's not a day goes by that I don't think to myself I killed my grandma and there was a and there were lots of different things that had all sorts of different inflections from like abuse memories to, you know, uh, uh, divorces and all these kind of things. But um, he talked about how even though the process of writing them down seemed to make people feel worse initially and more stressed and upset and was disruptive, that over the next six months they showed all sorts of improvements in all sorts of measures. And I just wonder if you could talk about like how psychologically the process of like revisiting this stuff has been for you, because on one level, I know lots of people listening will be that like the most scary thing they can think of is going to some of this material in their, their lives, you know, uh, it, it kind of isn't getting any easier in, it's and I, I guess that's a good thing because you want you know I need to be in touch with how I f- authentically feel about it in order to communicate it in a way that is going to be impactful. Um, 
at the moment, uh, I'm writing a memoir. And the, the particular bit that I'm writing about it is, is a, I, I, for the last few weeks, I've been skirting around a, a very difficult experience. And it's probably been the most uh, problematic thing I've ever had to write. I've written about uh, suicide attempts and I've written about all kinds of violence and um but there's something about this particular event that i'm really really struggling with I, you know and and i i think the key thing in terms of the process of writing around painful experiences that I've learned is that I need to give myself, I need to be kind to myself. Like if, if I wake up in the morning and sit in front of my laptop and think, you know what, like I just can't, I can't do this, this particular thing today. Then, then there's, there's always another thing. There's always another job to be done. Um, but obviously there are also deadlines so it's it's a tricky thing to manage uh i don't have any um like amazing advice in terms of how to address that stuff in a way that allows us an element of self-care other than i don't know how you work as a writer uh but there has to be there has to be a delineation <laughs> between between work time and the rest of your life. Otherwise, and that's really hard when we're writing, and it's incredibly hard when we're writing memoir, because how do you detach yourself from your thoughts? You can't just jettison your personal history away because you've stopped writing about it. You can't just jettison your trauma away. So that you've got to have things in place that... Um, delineate <laughs> your your day. Um, uh, my partner's brother uh, works for the BBC, and and one of the things that he does has done during lockdown to delineate his day is is like instead of a the the walk to work, he has like a shower and then a, 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 and then a, a a bath at the end of the day, and that's that's a good thing. Something that's that resets, you know, something physical yeah. that resets you, whether it's exercise or whether it's cold water or whether it's something like that to rem, to just to pull you out of um, the emotional experience that you are that you've you know that you've that you've been burrowing away in. I th I think it can. It, I I think just acknowledging that it may the the effect it has on you may take you by surprise yeah. is I think valuable in itself. I think when we write about this stuff, and it's not, and it's not always, it's not always the experiences that you would anticipate would bring that up. At you know, sometimes it's something that seems like a fairly sort of easy. Uh, or or you don't think you've got too much attached to can bring 
bring stuff up and i i think that you it's 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 hard to give yourself permission to like feel like crap or just or just sometimes you just feel really tired or like you say you just feel like you can't do it it's, there was a bit you know writing the thing i'm writing at the moment there's only like three paragraphs and it took me I think something like four weeks or something. I took up marathon running to avoid it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, you know, I started yeah. running like 18 mile runs because I was just like, I would want any excuse not to. And I, I was like going, why are you procrastinating? Like yeah. I didn't really put it in my head together. That I didn't want to write it. I just, I suppose like you, you start having thoughts like I want to do this right. I don't want to get this wrong. Does anyone want to hear about this? Do I want to write about it? What if the people I'm writing about read it, which I think is un- extremely unlikely. Yeah. Um, all those things, but, and, you know, looking back, I'm just like, oh, that was just hard to write about because for me, no matter how, what emotional valence it might have for other people, it might be amazed that it bothers me. For me, that was just a thing that... And then, of course, you might not end up including it in the book, of course. Yeah. Like, you do all these things and then you go, hang on, yeah. maybe this won't appear. Yeah, well, I, 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 one of the strange things that's happened recently is that I, I, I wasn't expecting... Uh, is that uh, I found myself sort of emotionally regressing. Uh, I thought, oh God, I'm totally over this thing, or I don't feel a particular way about this thing. It's a, it's a, whatever it is. It's, it's just, um, it's just uh, a part of my personal history, and I can communicate about it, and we can, you know, maybe I'll learn something, and maybe uh, the reader will, will, will be interested. Uh, and then I've started writing about it and putting myself, you know, and 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 rem- remembering the texture of what it felt to be that age, having that experience. And I've either gotten furious or, 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 or really sad or, or, um, you know, it's just, it's just absolutely, I've jumped in the time machine, you know, and, and, uh, and I'm feeling those things. And I'm like, Oh, Oh yeah. <laughs> this is the, this is, this is what those things felt like. And, and, and certainly, and it's, and it's not always, you know, you might think, oh, that's the, that, that'll be the big, that'll be the big traumatic events. And it's not always those things. It's, it's the things, it's the peripheral things <laughs> often that, that, that give, that remind me of the flavor of the time and, and then just a, 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 a tsunami of context sort of hits me. And, and, and brings with it this intense um, emotion from 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 my uh, childhood or teens and that has been quite a shocker I've never really experienced that in any other uh, creative project that I've done and in terms of I suppose the the kind of you, we talked like at the right at the beginning you were talking about um this idea of like being picked out as gifted and 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 having this sense of there were certain things you you talked about I, i'm sure you you uh, you talked about meaning yeah and thing is acquiring like feeling mean like you're able to have like a meaningful influence yeah and i just i wonder if there's anything you can say about um how cuz like what you're talking about is like i suppose some people might hear it and go well I, I just I don't want to put myself through that kind of that sounds like a that sounds like a real kind of like royal rumble of like 
taking stuff on it takes a lot of fortitude to be able to kind of weather that kind of thing yeah and i i'm I'm wondering like on the other side of it if there's any how the project has felt meaningful to you writing about yourself and writing a, a memoir and how you know what's the what's the other side of the what's on the other balance that is pulling you through some really really emotional tumultuous experiences well i get to talk about something that's profoundly i get to talk about a whole bunch of things that are profoundly important to me um the book that i'm writing is about how environment affects behavior and it's about uh, a privilege in a sense um I mean, it's about a load of other stuff as well, but it's, it's most basic. Uh, I, I, I really want people to feel and understand. I, when I talk about privilege, I'm not in any way being hectoring or, or judgmental or anything like that. I mean, I, I, I have privileges <laughs> um, and, and, and occasionally they'll be highlighted. I have privileges that I don't understand. <laughs> Uh, our privileges and occasionally they'll be highlighted and when they are highlighted I hope that I'm gracious enough to be like oh yeah that now that I understand that I can I can try and move through the world in a in a different way I think telling a very powerful story is a good way to to a, a powerful and relatable story is a good way to get people on board so uh, shall I give shall I give you a bit of context about yes please uh, what, what it's about the book so when I was in in Christmas, just before it's Christmas, nineteen ninety four, I think uh, I was nineteen, and uh, I'd just gotten out of a psychiatric ward. Two weeks earlier, I'd been shot through the hand, and a few weeks before that, I'd been stabbed in the stomach, and um, I'd I'd been I'd gotten out of a psychiatric ward, and I'd been invited back for the Christmas party. I was a drug addict at the time, and I didn't have a lot going on in my life, Tim. So I went back to this. Uh, <laughs> I went back to the psych ward Christmas party, which is the saddest bit of this story. <laughs> like, uh, imagine choosing to go back to a psych ward just to. But uh, um, for some reason, I drank a, an entire bottle of taboo. I don't know if you remember what taboo is. I can barely. I do remember. I do like remember what peach, what taboo peach is. Snaps or something weird. I can't even. And 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 done fistfuls of benzodiazepine to mazepam um and uh, and so i wasn't uh, together uh, that together now there'd been a lot of threats on my life at that point and they were very serious threats and uh in fact that uh, people were looking for me so that they could take me into the woods they told me how they were going to kill me they were going to uh, uh uh nail me to crucify me to a couple of trees and um and disembowel me while i was still alive and it's a really fucking hell yeah I, I'm, I'm and and you'd been shot through the hand and stabbed yeah, as well it's I, not like that yeah yeah exactly i mean these were these were serious threats and and i'd already experienced some unpleasant things and 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 very unpleasant things and so i was a bit of a wreck hence being in a psychiatric unit and um and and drowning out any emotion with uh, barbiturates and taboo <laughs> and so so um <clears throat> one of the foolish uh, life choices i made at the time tim was uh, uh i had a gun and i used to carry this gun around in my it was never loaded but if 
if these people turned up, which was, again, a, a very real fear, I thought it would buy me enough time. I could point it at them and run away. That was, the, that was my big plan. Uh, point it, get, it would get me enough time to get out the room and I wouldn't be disemboweled. Um, so I had this gun. The gun was real, but not loaded. It was in my belt. And, um, and because I was so messed up, I'd forgotten that occasionally it would be visible if I bent over and I'd turn up on this psych ward with this firearm and somebody spotted it. One of the members of staff spotted it. And, and like, so they're like, <laughs> they're like, you got to leave. And so uh, I was still a little... Which seems like a very proportionate response yeah, yeah, given yeah. the circumstances. I mean, there's, there's slightly more panic than that, but uh, I was really high, so it's all a bit... It's all a bit hazy. I remember walking out. It was night in this big hospital, Sheffield Northern General Hospital. And uh, and I got lost walking around the wards and, and I didn't see anybody. And then I got to A&E and A&E was empty. And it's a big hospital, so I guess they'd evacuated. Um, uh, Fuck, really? Well, I guess so. I can't see why A&E would be empty otherwise. I get around, around, Especially around Christmas, Christmas time, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. That's like... not, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I guess... Uh, um, I guess so. And so I, um, I go out the front and there's these two police officers, uh, uniformed, and, and uh, one of them said, where are you going? And I make some nonsense up. And, but instead, I only know council estates because I'm scum. <laughs> and so I, but I, give them, so I give them another rough council estate instead of giving them somewhere nice. Um, uh, and, 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 and he says, oh, yeah, it's just over there. And he points and he sort of walks, one of them walks me towards this wall. And as I turn around, I get rugby tackled. Uh, uh, an armed SWAT team jumps out from these three white vans that I haven't noticed. There's a machine gun uh, pressed into my neck. Uh, I'm, I'm spread out crucifix style on the floor, arms out, legs out. Uh, 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 this big copper... Uh, comes drops his full weight on my face and shatters my cheekbone and and uh, and another one does the same on the bullet wound that's through my, my hand's swollen like a tennis ball and he drops on my hand and it explodes and oh. uh, and um and 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 then they they proceed to batter me they beat me quite badly and um and then i get taken to the cells uh and um uh i'm so badly beaten up that uh, they have to take me back to hospital, <laughs> and this WPC takes me to hospital. Um, they because uh, uh, I'm uh, there's just the back of my pants are all blood because my hands just been bleeding and the back back of the police cars all blood and uh, and they have to take me to hospital. And while they're taking me to hospital, I guess I tell this WPC what's gone on and why I've got a gun with no bullets in it and um, and it looks uh, it looks like I'm going to do a very long prison sentence, about seven years. Everybody tells me I'm going to do about seven years, um, uh, but I don't. Uh, I'm not going to. I'm not going to tell more of the story of that story than that because uh, I'll, I'll put it in the book. But like, uh, that's sort of towards the end of the book. Um, that's where I end up. Uh, now, as a kid, I was. I like dinosaurs. I was very nerdy. I used to wear a silver lame ball gown. <laughs> And do performances for my mulleted uncle because I was so quiet. You know, I was a, just a nice, a very, very polite, very quiet, very well-behaved, very anxious kid. And the story of the book is about how does a person go from being this neurotic little kid um, to being, um, you know, a gun-toting uh, career criminal. 
and 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 it's a it's I am very 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 passionate about communicating how those trajectories occur and um, exploring nature nurture exploring uh, the environmental aspects of that journey uh, exploring personal responsibility and doing it in a way that people can get on board with and and people can have an emotional reaction to uh, that will solidify um, the concepts that I am that I'm uh, that I'm delving into in a way that'll stick with them so that so that I think you know I want people to really understand like that that um, bad behavior isn't necessarily uh, a, a bad behavior isn't necessarily the um, result of a bad character but sometimes it's the result of extremely bad experiences negative experiences wow in, in psychology, they call that the, um, in social psychology, I think it is, they call it the fundamental attribution er error. I don't know if you've ever come across that. Oh, no. It was this term co coined by Lee Ross. But the fundamental attribution error is that when we think about, when we explain our own actions and behavior, we tend to attribute it to the environment, circumstances, context. I was tired. Oh, you know, I I'd had a bad morning whatever but when people are asked to explain the behavior of other people good or bad they tend to they're more likely to uh, attribute it to character yeah rather than thinking about the context in which that that, that person's behavior exists yeah. and 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 I guess that's because we have that might be you know because we have access to our own stories yeah we don't have immediate access to the people stories of people around us, so we just, without even really thinking about it, we just fill them in. Oh, I probably, I think I, I think I probably can guess what your entire life has been like, so I'll just do that and make a assumption about it. And it's kind of crazy, right? Like that we that we do that, and then stores it. You know, the the act of writing about this is is an act of like disrupting everyone's assumptions. Because I've got to admit, if I saw like a a drunk gunman walking around the A and E ward I was in, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go. Oh, he's, he's probably just got that for self protection. He's had a, he's had a tricky time. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'd, I'd run yeah. away, right? Yeah, I'd be yeah. scared, uh, and I'd probably, and I'd probably make all sorts of assumptions about what kind of person that was because I'd be acting, I'd, I'd be experiencing terror. Well, of course, and 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 there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with that judgment. Jump into a, a judgment that that. You know, like it's just, somebody's got a gun in a coming. Somebody's walking out of a psychiatric ward with a gun, Tim. You, it's a reasonable, it's a fear. <laughs> uh, the the judgments that you make are probably quite reasonable. But um, a friend of mine, James Doherty, um, who it works for an organisation called the VRU up in Scotland, who are a police led organisation. Um, but he's a, a an ex gang member um, uh, and done long term prison sentence. Um, but now works with offenders. He said a really, uh, he said something that stuck with me. He said that uh, 
people watch those um, NSPCC uh, adverts um, with a kid uh, crying on the stairs and some uh, piano music and and uh, and the parents arguing in the background and the kid wincing and they and they watch those adverts and they feel a, an incredible amount of compassion for that child rightly so but they don't sustain that compassion for who that child will grow up to be <laughs> having experienced all that trauma and uh, and I think that that's that's really the crux of it you know um a lot of a lot of the people uh, I know and I grew up with and a lot of the people I work with as an adult who are um at the sharp end of society's judgment um because of the behaviors they display uh are those children you know are children that have experienced an incredible uh uh, they were ch- children that exper- experienced an incredible amount of uh, of trauma that has informed behaviour. Behaviour doesn't exist in a vacuum, <laughs> and so and so uh, and 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 it's you know I want to explore all elements of that as well. So you know my mum who had a library full of David Icke and practiced uh, did like Wiccan practices on the little bit of grass outside our council flat and my nan who was uh uh took me to spiritualist church and and did uh uh tea leaf readings you know they told me um that that i was exceptional um because i had the gift or in their in their minds at least um and and uh, and as crazy as all that sounds being told that i was special in that way is is probably the thing that allowed me um, to, when it was time to leave that life behind, that allowed me to do that because there was a, there was something about being um, positively uh, something about being praised, even though it was for slightly uh, anomalous and strange stuff that gave me uh, a a modicum of self-belief beyond um beyond the confines of my uh shitty environment and so and so bizarrely it's probably being told that you know I was I was good at something that when it came time to think, oh, maybe I'll, I'm dyslexic, Tim. I'm severely dyslexic, and 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 I left, I basically left school at nine. You know, I mean, I went back occasionally, but I never really properly went back. I've, my handwriting is illegible. I can't spell anything. I don't. There's so many gaps in my education. I don't know anything. So it's ridiculous that I should believe that I could be a writer or have anything to say about anything, given the given the amount of the weight of um, the weight of uh, just criticism I faced growing up. Growing up poor, being told I was stupid because of my dyslexia, being told I was scum because of where I was from, being told I was, uh, you know, th- going through addiction and, 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 and kind of 
being told I would never amount to anything, you know, I was told I, was ne- I would never amount to anything from a pretty young age. You know, I was told, uh, I remember my mum getting a letter from, from secondary school saying that I'd end up in prison if I wasn't cur- careful, not because I'd misbehaved, but because I was, I'd been moved around a lot and kids like me from where I grew up, um, that's where we went. Eventually, I did misbehave, so I guess it was a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. But, um, but I, you know, there was a there was a nugget of something uh, of self-belief, and, and 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 perhaps that came from this bizarre um, narrative of exceptionalism that I experienced uh, as a as a kid. It's just like it strikes me. Thanks for that. So it's right. Thank you, Byron. I really appreciate you talking about it. And uh, it just it strikes me that these different roles that we're kind of have people assigned to us, some of them have got more wriggle room than others. Yeah. And it, it it it's just ups. It's upset. You know, even one that's like you're 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 you know you're going to be a gifted a gifted psychic or whatever <laughs> or a medium or something. But that has, that kind of has more, it almost, that almost has more space to, for self-development than, well, it's just fucked up that that yeah. actually has much more space for self-growth um, and development and positive realisation than the one being handed down to you by society, which is just like, you are, you have no prospects and the best you can hope for is if you obey us who by the way we fucking hate you and i've got no no regard for you whatsoever but if you obey everything and by the way you're going to get fuck all from us as well but if you do all that and you don't fuck up and you stay out of our way maybe you can avoid this suite of punishments yeah we've got lined up for you oh but anything in terms of you making a positive contribution or uh expressing yourself or being valued as a human being as a unique human being it won't happen again that doesn't exist but just here's the here's the punishments you can avoid that that is that's the more absurd inhumane sort of well, life ex- well exactly on, and on the other on the flip side of that coin you've got um uh, manic pixie dream nan Telling you that, uh, telling you that you're literally magic. So, like, yeah. what you're gonna, what you're gonna want to believe when you're six? <laughs> you're gonna wanna, you're gonna wanna, you're gonna wanna. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't know if I ever, how much I ever adhered to those notions. Um, I certainly played up to them, uh, but, but I don't know how much I ever believed them. But, but it was a. It was a, it was a great thing to um, fantasize about and feel special about, you know, because in as a kid you're just kind of being told that you're magic. Yeah, and I, I, I do, I do also think that the sort of in terms of like mediumship and stuff, yeah. I mean, like how many, how many sort of like camp stroke uh, gay working class men yeah. found an outlet and acceptance going around working men's clubs and folk clubs in yeah. the 70s and 80s being mediums or spiritualists you know it's actually a place where they could you know like really be a part of the community and be valued and and it, you know like sometimes 
you know, the Church of England has often been a place where, you know, for all its staid kind of like conformism and stuff has actually often been a place where people who feel like they don't fit in or eccentrics in England or people who feel not accepted by the community could actually find a space where they could well, I, be some less repressed version of themselves. Exactly. And, and um, you know, despite the charlatanism, um, it is a, you know, it, it's a place of catharsis and therapy when in, in uh, parts, four parts of society and at a time when spaces of catharsis and therapy didn't exist you know so yeah. so i guess i guess that's why um uh, people who were more sensitive were drawn to it well i really appreciate you talking to me about all this bar and it's been a really really amazing um talk and i i'm really looking forward to um reading your memoir when it comes out sorry that sounds like a bit a glib and pat to like end it by going well i'm really looking forward to your book when it comes out it seems a little bit kind of chat show host i don't mean it like i mean it sincerely but um like we were sort of saying at the beginning sometimes the kind of like toddler um i like you and i want good things to happen to you is it just happens to be the truth and that is in this case well right back at you tim and um uh, uh, yeah and uh, and uh, yeah so it's always lovely to chat yeah and everyone listening thank you very much for um listening in to today's episode i'll um uh, put links in the uh show notes to anything we've talked about and i hope you have a wonderful week of writing <laughs>